0: We'll be in 1 Peter chapter three, verses eight through twenty-two. It's a longer portion of Scripture, and frankly, it's a it's a fairly dense portion of Scripture. But we're going to move through it pretty quickly. This past summer, I took our our students on a, a hiking trip uh, up north of, of Hood River, and I'm not <laughs> I'm not. Uh, anyone's idea of an experienced uh, outdoorsman or, or hiker. And so I was, I, I, I was doing this for the students, something that they wanted to do, and I I was glad to oblige them, but uh, at the same time a little nervous. I thought, well, how do I plan a, a hiking trip for a bunch of, you know, rowdy teenagers when I, I myself um, don't, don't ever really go hiking or camping. Um, so I did some research online. Um, I'm a millennial, that's what we do. And uh, if it turns out there's quite a few ways to research hiking trails Um, you can you can read reviews that people have posted you can look at selfies that people have uploaded with you know their dogs or whatever on the trail you can uh, you can get up-to-date kind of weather reports on the trail Someone says, hey I was at this trail on Saturday and about at the the quarter mile marker it was a little muddy or a little icy or whatever so you can read reviews look at apps you can consult um, one website actually offered six different kinds of maps for this one trail, and I'm I'm not smart enough to understand what like five of those maps were for. I thought I just why not just have one map? I don't know. Uh, but apparently, if if you if you go camping or hiking, um, you you learn to read different types of maps uh, because they serve different purposes, right? Some maps will tell you. The length of the trail. Some maps will give you a satellite image. And if you're online, you can even get kind of use the 3D feature and you can kind of uh, navigate your way through the the satellite uh, image. Uh, Other maps, like the topographical map, are going to tell you more about the the contours of the land. Uh, What's the elevation uh, rise and fall over the course of the trail? Different maps for different purposes. Today, we are going to be looking at kind of topographical map of 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, We're not going to stop and and smell every flower. We're not going to dip our toes in every stream. There are some things that we are going to to move uh, past without examining carefully, Uh, but the reason why we're taking this large chunk of scripture in a short period of time is to explore the the contours of this passage. We want to get the the aerial view. We want to see the big picture because there are some very important themes that are being developed in this one passage. And while it is good to slow down and, and work carefully through uh, through uh, every word and preposition, when we do that, sometimes we, we miss the big picture. So today, we're thinking big picture. And my, my prayer for you as we do this is that we will be encouraged to hope In Jesus, that our our hope in Jesus would be strengthened as we look at this passage together. So let me read this passage for us. We'll pray, and then we'll we'll dive in. So 1 Peter chapter 3, we're on page 1076, starting in verse 8. It says this, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh. But made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, uh, authorities, and powers subjected to him. Church, let's pray. Father, God, we love you. And as we look at your word, Father, we we really ask uh, two two main things. God, we pray that by your spirit our eyes would be opened. Help us to, to understand. Help us to understand the meaning of this text we, we want to know what you have spoken to your people but father we also ask that by your spirit that, that our hearts would be opened as well God we want to feel rightly we want to respond rightly we want to worship you God we don't want to just understand what's happening intellectually God we want to be moved in our very uh, being in the in soul of, of our being God we want to see you and respond with worship In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, as we begin in verse 8, we recognize that we're actually picking up sort of the tail end of a longer argument. We see that first word there in verse 8 is, finally, finally, he says, do good. So what's been going on? Let's just zoom out a little bit, a little bit of context Starting in chapter 2, verse 11, he's been giving specific instructions for how to live as Christians in a pagan society. Chapter 1, verse 1, he addresses them as exiles, as strangers, as sojourners, a minority group living in a world that is not their own. These people are Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, specifically those living in in modern-day Turkey. Christianity is still new. It's misunderstood. The Romans don't quite know what to think of this new sect, this religious fringe group. And Peter says, as you live as strangers, recognize that this world is not your home. You will always be pilgrims on the way, as, as we sung, you will always be exiles, sort of making our way back home. Then, how do we live? So, in chapter uh, 2, starting in verse 11, all the way, working all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, he gives us a couple of spheres of life to think about. How do you live as Christians in society? How do you live how how do you be a good neighbor? How do you be a good citizen as a Christian? How do you live as a Christian within within the workplace? How do you relate to your employer, your employees? Your coworkers, your colleagues. How how do you relate to them as a Christian? Moves on to the home. How do you relate to your to your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters? How, How do you relate within the home as a Christian? And then now in verse 8, he turns his attention to the church. How do we we live within the church as Christians? And the key, you'll be unsurprised to learn, is love. He lists a couple things here. Finally, all of you be like minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Not surprising, love is at the center. Love is at the center. How do we live? We love one another. But, verse 9, not only do we love one another within the church, but we are to love those who hate us. We are to love those who misunderstand us, who reject us, who marginalize us. When evil is done against us, we are to respond with goodness not just a goodness in our minds not just an idea of goodness but real practical tangible goodness we are to work and pray for the good of those that do not love us why 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 should we do that what reason could there be for this kind of behavior and Peter uses two words here that, that we'll, we'll, we'll kind of zoom in on. Calling and inheritance. Why should you love those who do not love you? Why should you love those who malign you? Because of your calling and your inheritance. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, we, we uh, were told that God has called us, those of us who have faith in Jesus, have been called out of Darkness and into light. We now belong to God. We represent him. Right? Peter says, we are a kingdom of priests. Typically, in a kingdom, not everyone is a priest. You have a few chosen priests who represent God to the people and represent the people to God. But in the church, everyone is a priest. Representing God to the world, and we have been called, as Pastor uh, Pastor Wells said, we have been called to proclaim the praises of our God. 1 Peter two nine. We have been called, past tense, have been called, out of darkness into light, to be God's ambassadors, to be His representatives, to proclaim His praises. That's our calling. What's our inheritance? Our inheritance is not, nothing, left, <laughs> nothing less than eternal life with God. So, just briefly, if I can just make a, a note here, Peter uses some of these words differently than we use them today. Just making a, just a, just a, just a side note here. I think this is helpful. Uh, we uh, tend to use words like saved or salvation in, in the past tense. I'm not saying that's wrong, It's just not how Peter's using it. So I I would say, I got saved when I was nine years old. God saved me when I I was a kid. That's how we sometimes use the word saved. That's not wrong. That's just not how Peter's using it. Uh, And and sometimes we think of calling as future tense or or present tense. God is calling me to the mission field. Again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's just not how Peter's using these words. Uh, Peter... Uh, uses these terms differently. For Peter, calling is is past tense. Past tense. You have been called. You have been called by God out of darkness into light. That's past tense. Uh, He he talks about salvation in the present tense. You are receiving your salvation. You are being saved currently. And one day, you will receive your inheritance. Future tense. What is the inheritance? It will be revealed to us at the return of Christ. Christ. It's life with, with God. So, have been called, past tense, are being saved, present tense, will receive inheritance, future tense. Okay? Just, just, just a clar- clarification on terms there. So, I'm not saying that um, we're earning our salvation. I'm not saying that, that anything like that. Just he's using these words differently than we use them. Okay, and, and to emphasize this point, Peter quotes from Psalm 34. So if you look with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, in my Bible here, it's it's bolded. The bolded section is a quote, direct quote from Psalm 34. And Peter utilizes this quote to make it very clear that God's people are to honor God by living peaceably with others. Those who claim to know God, but regularly do evil to others prove that they do not actually share in the inheritance with God's chosen people. So if, if you have been called, Peter says, if you have been called, and if you are being saved, and if you are awaiting an inheritance, then you, you will live, currently you will live in a way that honors God, namely by doing good to others, So, for the context here, why in the world did did he choose Psalm 34? I mean, it's it's a beautiful psalm. I love it. Great psalm, but kind of random. Why why did Peter choose? I mean, he he could have just said what I said. Why 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 did he have to quote David? Well, again, he's writing to strangers and sojourners, living in a land not their own, pilgrims on the way back home, and this is very similar to the context in which David wrote Psalm 34. Remember, when David wrote Psalm 34, he was far from home. He had to change his appearance before, um, before the king. He was afraid of being killed. David was writing as a kind of exile. David was writing as a kind of sojourner. And Peter says, listen, this was true for David then. It's true for you Now, this is how we live as exiles. This is how we live as sojourners. We do good and never do evil. And this is only possible because of our calling and our inheritance in Jesus. Amen. So let's look at verses 13 through 17. And Peter begins with this, this rhetorical question. So he, he's, he's just given us, starting in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to 3, 7. He's just given us these instructions about how to live in society, uh, 3, 8 through 12. He's now given us um, instructions about how to respond to insult and, and malignment. And then he, he leads into this rhetorical question. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? If we are living as Christians, if we are following the kingdom ethic set forward by Jesus, right loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, loving others, loving our neighbors as ourselves. If, if we are doing this well, if we're, I mean if we're really loving our neighbors well, who's going to complain about that, right? Who's going to give us grief about that? If we are living this out in society as good citizens, if we're living this out in the workplace as good employees, if we're living this out in the home as good husbands, wives, children, parents, etc., if we're living this out in the church, we're serving one another as as faithful church members, who is going to complain? Even if people don't maybe uh, agree with our our, our message or or, or, our, our theology, they'll generally appreciate our good works who's going to give us grief well Peter says (laughs) even if you do good and even if you are well thought of by your neighbors still still just expect that unjust suffering is going to be a normal pattern of your life don't stop doing good keep doing good keep loving your neighbor as yourself keep loving God And also, at the same time, expect unjust suffering to be regular. Again, this leads to another question. Why? Why? Why is suffering a a normal part of life? Why, Why should we expect to be unfairly treated? I mean, I get it happens every once in a while, but 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 Peter says this is a normal way of life? Why should we expect this? And the answer, according to Peter, is that Jesus suffered. We are Christians. We're following in the way of our King, Jesus. He suffered, and so shall we. We who bear the name Christian will suffer because Christ suffered. So I, I don't think that, that Peter is being unkind. I don't think he's being harsh. He's not telling them to keep a, a stiff upper upper lip and just just you know clench your, your jaw and, and uh, tighten your knuckles and just, just bear it. I don't think he's saying that. Hold on to hope. Love what is good and prepare for suffering. So what does it look like? What does it look like to suffer as a Christian? How do we suffer well? How do we do this? It's one thing to be told, yes, suffering will happen. It's another thing to be told, you must suffer as a Christian. You must suffer in a Christian way. Well, (laughs) Well, how? What does that even mean? Verses 14 and 15 give us some clues. The first thing that he mentions here is that we are to fear Christ more than we fear persecution. The second thing is that we are to be full of hope and be ready to explain why. Why? The third thing is that we are to respond to those who who question us with gentleness and respect while continuing to do good works. So much more could be said about these three things, but allow me to make just a few brief observations. First, we are commanded to prepare for suffering, be prepared. How do we do this? We prepare by fearing God and having hope now. Right? If, if I do not fear God today, and when I say fear God, I mean, if, if I'm not putting more weight on God's opinion of me than the opinion of other people, if I'm not currently holding fast to the hope that I have in Christ, then I'm not suddenly going to do so when I'm falsely accused. I'm not suddenly going to, to, to say, you know what, God's opinion matters more to me than anyone else. That's not going to happen all of a sudden <clears throat> in, in the moment of, of suffering. It's something that I, I must prepare for ahead of time. I think a helpful illustration for these verses is the biblical prophet Daniel. So think about what you know of, of Daniel, right? Daniel was, uh, going, going back to the Old Testament, Daniel was a a Jew lived faithfully to God, and was literally in exile. The Babylonian Empire came through town, took Daniel captive, made him a slave, drug him back to the city of of Babylonia. He was truly a sojourner in a land not his own. He was living in a pagan land that was hostile to his faith. And over the course of his lifetime, Daniel committed himself to loving God and loving others. He was an excellent citizen. He was an excellent, if we can use the word, employee. He had a reputation for being blameless in his work. And he committed himself to praying to God. Three times a day, we're told. Those who wanted to harm him could, could practically set their watches by the times that Daniel prayed. And you know the story, you know how this goes, right? The the wise men of the emperor, they they hated Daniel, they were jealous of him, and so they created this this law that made prayer to God illegal, and and Daniel, apparently undeterred by this, just keeps praying, and he's arrested. They try to execute him by throwing him in this in this pit full of lions. Um, the lions were were trained and prepared for execution and uh, Daniel was thrown in this pit. God saved him, and later his enemies were the ones who were thrown into the pit. Daniel was vindicated because of his righteousness. His enemies were put to shame. Okay, now, I'm not Daniel, and uh, neither are you, (laughs) okay? But the salient point here is that Daniel had already made a habit of praying to God regularly. Daniel already feared God more than man. Daniel had already spent his lifetime doing good works. So when the persecution came, he was prepared. When his enemies tried to trap him, Daniel just kept doing what he had always been doing. Daniel didn't start praying all of a sudden when it became illegal. Oh, it's illegal? Now I'm going to pray. No, he didn't do that. He just kept doing what he's always been doing. Okay, so what, is, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us today? What does it mean for Christians today? Richland, Washington, 2022. How do we prepare for, for, for unjust suffering? How do we prepare for, uh, for persecution? Well, we, we start, I think, by viewing ourselves as exiles, if, if we haven't already. We are strangers. We are sojourners. I, I'm repeating these words a lot. I, I want you to, <laughs> to hold on to them. We are pilgrims on the way back, home this world is not our home and we don't need to be surprised when we're falsely because we don't need to be surprised when we're slander we don't need to be surprised when our faith is misunderstood we don't need to be surprised if people reject us because of our faith if we are living as Christians in this world then all of these things are likely to happen and likely to keep happening The second big takeaway is to hold on to hope. We are not despairing and defeated Christians, right? Being exiles, being pilgrims doesn't mean that we're defeated. We're not just morbidly waiting around for Jesus to come back. We are actually the most hopeful people in the entire world, Our hope is so conspicuous and possibly contagious that people are regularly asking us about it. Now, to be clear, hope in and of itself doesn't require much of an explanation. But specifically, hope in the resurrected Jesus, that's confounding. People get hope. We understand hope our neighbors understand hope our, our family members they understand hope but they may not understand our hope so the instruction here is not to be generally hopeful or blindly optimistic the command is to have an uncommon hope what do I mean by this well think about it everyone hopes for something everyone has hope everyone that you meet is hoping in something. The question is, what are we putting our hope in? What, what kinds of things do you hope in? <clears throat> A few examples. Many people. Uh, hopes rise and fall with, with the stock market. Right? What, what is my retirement fund to look like these days? Sometimes my hopes go up. Sometimes my hopes go down. What about those that put their hope in, in strength? Right? I'm not worried about what the future brings so long as I'm well stocked on gasoline, canned food, and ammo. As long as I've got my generator running, I've got hope. Now, if I were to run out of supplies or run out of ammo, then my hope would also run out. I've met people like this. Others of us might simply hope in, in more vague notions of, of kind of science or technology, right? I, I've, had conversa- I've had good conversations with, with good people. They say, things look bad now, but just wait, just wait until, until scientists can come up with something better. Then our lives will improve. Then society will, will level out. Then things will get better for humanity. Just, just wait until scientists figure out a solution Uh, still others of us our hope follows a regular four year cycle right our hope is either lifted or crushed uh, depending on whoever happens to be running for office every four years I mean all of these things are so predictable they're boring they don't need any explanation but our hope is different, particularly, particularly in the midst of suffering. Our hope is unfathomable, except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our hope makes no sense. So allow me to challenge you. I, 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 don't, I don't know, I don't know uh, most of you, but but let, let me challenge you. You don't know me. I don't know you. But just, just humbly, respectfully, let me just challenge you for, for just a moment. Is this the kind of hope that you have? Is your hope easily understood by your unbelieving neighbors? And co-workers? Classmates? Or is your hope surprising to them? Does your hope challenge them does it consider them to consider the relative fragility of their own hope let me press further if if perhaps you're considering for yourself do i have this kind of hope do i have the kind of hope that is strengthened in suffering and not weakened is this the hope that you have I pray that it is. If, if not, um, please, please come talk to me or, or, or one, of the, one of the pastors here. We love you. We care about you. We want you to have this kind of hope. Somebody once said, and I forgot who said it, but someone said, um, you can explain uh, the gospel in like three sentences. I'm an idiot. My future is incredibly bright. And anyone can get in on this. So I'll just say that to you. <clears throat> Are we living our lives in such a way as to make some folks say, you know what? I want to get in on that. That person has got something different. When everything else gives way, they're holding on to something that gives them strength. And I want to know what that is. Peter expects, Peter expects that our hope is conspicuous and confounding. Is that true of us? Is that true of us? I hope it is. I pray that it is. Okay, now let's look at verses 18 through 22, the fun part, okay? (laughs) Um, I was tempted, I was tempted, just to kind of end things at verse 17. Um, Verses 13 through 17 I think we all know pretty well. I, again, I don't, I don't know you all, but I assume um, you, you, you've been uh, around church for a while. Maybe you've been through Sunday school. You've probably heard many uh, lessons and whatnot on, on verses 13 through 17. I was tempted to end it there, okay? It's familiar territory. I think we're comfortable there. Verses 18 through 22, a little less comfortable. There's some, there's some, some things in there that, that are a little hard to understand. Let's just be honest, okay? There's some hard things there. But but as I've been reading and and praying uh, just the past couple of weeks, realize, man, we actually cannot end on verse 17 because Peter hasn't told us what the reason for our hope is. He says, be prepared to explain the reason for your hope. And then he gives it to us. What is the reason for our hope? He says, let, let me tell you, it's right here. And I missed it because I was so distracted by the thing about Noah and the spirits in prison. I was like, man, what's going on there? And I missed, Peter is plainly telling us. If you want to prepare to give a defense, you don't need to to go to seminary. That's that's helpful, but you don't have to do that. You don't have to read a theology book. You don't have to to watch a a, a YouTube channel of some famous apologist. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You just have to read verse 18 through 22. What is the reason for our hope? Well, let me tell you. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. The reason for our hope is that Christ suffered. Why do we have hope in the midst of suffering? Because of what Christ. Suffering accomplished. And, and there's, there's two, there's two uh, things we need to draw out here, okay? The first point is that Christ suffered, and his suffering was purposeful and effective. Right? Jesus didn't suffer accidentally, he didn't suffer incidentally. He came to earth for the purpose of suffering. He came to suffer. And his suffering did stuff. It accomplished something. It accomplished actually a lot of things. What? What did Jesus' suffering accomplish? He brought us to God. He is innocent. I am guilty. Jesus took the payment, the penalty for my sin on the cross. He died in my place. And not only did he take my place on the cross, not only did he pay the penalty for my sin, but he reconciled me to God, I was an enemy of God. I was far off, but I have been brought near. I was called out of darkness into light because of the death of Christ. This is the very heart of the gospel message. This is the very center of the reason for our hope. But there's actually more that the suffering of Christ accomplished. There's more that he did. Jesus in his suffering did not only the penalty for my sin not only did he reconcile me to God as glorious as that is but in his suffering he also triumphed over evil including death and Satan Jesus is the conquering king he is our savior and our victor Okay. Real briefly, what in the world is going on with Noah and the flood and the baptism thing and the spirits in prison? Briefly, uh, let's just compare this passage to Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Real quick, I'll just read that for us. So Romans 6, 4 through 5. The apostle Paul says this, We were buried, therefore, with him, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then just this, this line here is, is critical. He says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's Romans 6, 5. And I, th- I think that's, that's really the key to understanding what's happening in First Peter 3. Okay, Peter and Paul are both pointing us to the same reality. We, through faith, are united to Jesus by faith. All right, again, who is this written to? Suffering Christians living under the reign of Nero in ancient Rome. Okay? Why is this good news? You are united to Christ. You are united to Christ. Because you are united to Christ, you will share in his sufferings. Guaranteed. Okay? (laughs) You will. You are united to Christ. And because you are united to Christ, you will participate in his death. You will share in his sufferings. And, (laughs) because you are united to Christ, you will also share in his resurrection. And this means that we have victory over all spiritual and human evil and even over death itself. Now, when we are baptized, and, and, and we're, we're good Baptists here, right? We, we, we baptize by immersion. Um, we baptize, uh, when we're baptized, we, we act out this reality. We go into uh, the, the water symbolizing judgment, symbolizing death. We go, we go down. But then we we come back up. We go under the waters symbolizing judgment and death. Which Peter says, you know, reminds me of Noah's flood. But then we come back out symbolizing resurrection. So the, the gospel message, it centers on the cross of Christ. It centers on the cross of Christ. But the gospel message is broader in its scope than than only the death of Jesus. The good news is not only that Jesus died in our place, not only that he rose from the dead, but it's also that he, he ascended to the Father. He's not here physically on earth. Where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing? <laughs> Reigning as victor, reigning as king over all creation, including Satan, including demons, including for them, Nero. Jesus is king, and he will return to make all things new. This is the hope that Peter's pointing them to. This is the hope. So brother, sister, you are suffering now, perhaps, unjustly, for the name of Christ. You now, perhaps, are misunderstood. Now, perhaps, are are being falsely accused, slandered, rejected, maybe even something worse. If that is you, if you are suffering for the name of Christ, then take heart. You are sharing in the very suffering of Jesus. This is evidence of your union with our victorious Savior. If you share in his suffering now, you will most assuredly share in his victory. Suffering is temporary. Resurrection is forever. As we uh, begin to wrap this up, just acknowledge we've moved very quickly through a very large and dense passage of Scripture. Uh, we've, we've surveyed the terrain. We've looked at the, the topo. Uh, we didn't explore all the flora and fauna uh, that we could have. Um, we, we got the lay of the land all the same. Big idea. Big idea. Christians will share. You will share in the sufferings of your Savior because you are united to him, but you will also share in his victory. And as we suffer, we've got some instructions. (laughs) We are to suffer in a way that is hopeful. We are to suffer in a way that reflects the love of of Christ. And this is a large part of our mission uh, as Christians on earth. As we are awaiting the return of our conquering king, we are to suffer well. This is our charge. This is our charge. Uh, suffering, it's not a blip on the radar. When suffering comes, we don't just hunker down and wait till it, it passes. Uh, it's not a speed bump on the path. Uh, in fact, and just being faithful to Peter here, I, I think that suffering is the path on which we tread. Uh, we should expect it, and we should prepare for it today, right now, by setting our hope firmly on Jesus and on his gospel. All right, let me pray for us. Father, God, we love you, and Father, we ask just uh, honestly. God, we we don't want to suffer, (laughs) okay? We don't want to. Um, God, we, we want life to be comfortable, God, we want to be at peace with others. We we don't want people to to dislike us. We don't want to be misunderstood. Um, God, but we love Jesus more. We love Jesus more than comfort or stability. God, help us to grow in our love for Jesus. Help us to grow in our love for the Savior. And may our love for him far outstrip our love, even of other good things. My like comfort and security and even family. Jesus, you died for us. We praise you. You conquered death. God, we praise you. You are ruling now. God, we, we, we submit to you. We worship you. And we eagerly anticipate the day when you will return as conqueror to make all things right. In the meantime, please, by your spirit, give us the the power to love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.